Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. The aim originally was to get some friends together and perhaps take it down to South Africa. I think we had 18 on the first trip and I think it was 100 pounds each. We probably did better than I ever would have thought. Last week's episode heard how Australian homegrown travel giant Flight Centre co-founder Graham Turner shifted into survival mode almost overnight to shore up the company built from scratch 38 years ago after COVID-19 caused borders and international travel to shut down. In part two this episode, Screw Turner opens up about being the accidental entrepreneur after punting his professional career early on to start up what would become his first empire, the cheap double-decker bus tours through Europe to Afghanistan and beyond. We began our chat by Screw comparing the 2020 COVID shutdown to other crises he's faced in almost 50 years in business. And he reckons starting the rollicking top-deck travel bus tours as a 24-year-old in the early 1970s prepared him extremely well for the vagaries of the travel industry in the decades that followed. I've often thought setting up and running top deck in the 70s and what we went through then and with some serious cash flow issues in the late 70s, early 80s in top deck, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things you get, just get used to. I don't think I could run top deck now because it's, uh, it's something for a relatively young person, you know, running old double decker buses around Europe and, uh, through to Kathmandu and North Africa and that sort of thing. Well, you can't literally go to Kathmandu anymore, really, can you? That was the fabulous part of that, what, 60s and 70s. You started in 73 doing that mm. as a 23-year-old. Is that true? Yeah, well, our first overland in the double-deckers was 75, which Bill James and I took. But, yeah, I, I think I think I, I was 24 when we started Top Deck in 73. And, you know, so I think... That sort of grounding in business meant that it couldn't get too much harder because we would have breakdowns. Mm. In London, you'd get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning from Afghanistan where they needed a new engine flown out, that sort of thing. So it prepared. Retail travel in the 80s seemed pretty easy compared to that. And, uh, And then the other challenges that you mentioned before, you know, the various Gulf Wars and 9-11 and and the GFC, um, yeah, this is by far the worst from a business point of view, definitely. From, but I guess you just accept in business that's what happens, and you know, particularly this is really unpredictable and unforeseeable from our point of view. But maybe we should have. I don't know. Yeah, just let's stick with top deck. Where did that idea come from, and where did you get the money from to buy your first double decker bus? You were so young. Yeah, well, we, my partner at the time, my business partner, Jeff Lomas, and I were both vets. We'd actually gone to school together, boarding school, and then uh, both did vet together, and we were traveling. We were doing locums, actually, over. Um, so you were a veterinary scientist, a veterinary surgeon. Yeah, yeah, the, both of us were, and we graduated, I think, in 71. So, and we started traveling 70, late, or 
mid to late 72, went to the Munich Olympics. I think it was at the Munich Beer Fest in 1973. I'd been working as a vet up in Yorkshire and came across a fitted-out double-decker bus. And uh, How do you come across a fitted-out double-decker bus as a 23-year-old and think, oh, I'll just buy this, or a 24-year-old? Well, we this was in, I think it was Sherburne in Elmet, which you probably have never heard of, but it's in Yorkshire. And it was one of the old World War II airfields converted into a second-hand bus station. Wow. And I remember I had a student vet with me at the time, and we'd just been to treat a horse. I can't remember what the problem the horse was, but I said, let's go and have a look at these double-decker buses. I'd been traveling around Europe a bit, and I'd seen a few fitted-out double-deckers, so I was a bit interested. And one of the buses had been fitted out with kitchens and this sort of thing. So we'd still had to do a fair bit of work with it, but that was just before the beer fest. So, and I think it was 650 pounds. So when I met up with Jeff Lomas, or Spy as he was known, so Spy and Screw looking at a double-decker bus together, yeah. And I convinced him, he was still travelling around with some friends, and I convinced him to put in half. And I said I'd go up and buy the bus and uh, bring it back to outside our flat in Mablethorpe Road in Fulham, which to the consternation of the neighbours who suddenly ended up with a huge double-decker bus in their street. So, And what was the aim? Well, the aim originally was to get some friends together and perhaps take it down to South Africa. That was our first thing. But you know what friends are like. Over a few beers, I'll say, yes, we're, we're in. And, and then be totally unreliable. <laughs> yeah, and just not, yeah, not turn up. So we eventually, after a month or so, we said, okay, let's do some trips. And we did France, Spain, Portugal, Moroccan. And six weeks or seven weeks, I think it was, six weeks. And what, were you charging people? Like, did you have other people on with you? Yeah, we had, I think we had 18 on the first trip and I think it was 100 pounds each. So Wow. And and then when we got back, our flatmate had another full bus ready to go out. So it wouldn't be as easy these days, I'm afraid. Yeah. So this Jeff Lomas was your partner in the first bus. Did you get the money for that £650? Was that from your earnings as a vet or did you borrow it? Did you? Yeah, we had enough money to do that and to fund the first trip. I think between us we had about thirteen or £1,400. Yeah, you know, and obviously once we got the money from people for that first trip, yeah, you know we we were off, and then every bit of profit we made for the next five. Well, Spy had to come home; his mother was very ill after about the first three or four months. So that's when a couple of the other guys, Bill James and and later Mick Carroll, came in with me, and we grew. Well, I think by nineteen eighty, we had about seventy double deckers running around all over the place. So. So within, what, seven years or something, you had 70 or so double-decker buses running these cheap trips around Europe? Yeah, and through to Kathmandu up until the, I think it was the invasion of Afghanistan by mm. Russia that stopped that. But, yeah, as you can imagine, it was that was fairly stressful. But Chaotic, <laughs> I would suggest. <laughs> yes, but we had a lot of good people. Again, it's, it's essential, 
Yeah. So was it all about at first sort of having fun and doing what you wanted to do, you know, which was probably travel? Or was it actually always a kind of a business dream for you, even back then? Look, I grew up on an apple orchard. I'd always been a bit interested in business and my my father would actually talk to me about it uh, even as a teenager or early teenager. But when we set up Top Deck, it was really about having fun, you know, going to places we wanted to go with people that would enjoy it and have fun and, and, Mm. and, and, and pay their way, I guess. And I can... Remember, after about 18 months or two years, by then we had about six buses and it was starting to become much more of a business and we weren't on the road anymore. We had to stay in, you know, we tended to be in London mm. working there. And I do remember having a conversation with one of my friends who was over there holidaying and he did some of our accounts then. And yeah, it was a fairly definite thing. Look, okay. We can see we can do pretty well out of this. Let's make it a business. And so that's about when I changed from thinking I was a vet to being a travel operator, I guess. Wow. And your friendship and partnership with a couple of your mates that you're still really friendly with and in business with, did that start then or were you friends before that? Well, Bill James... He was on the first trip, I think. I think it was the first trip as a passenger. Oh, wow. He came back and we'd been friends for a few weeks before the trip and I talked him into coming on the trip. He was working as a barman in a pub in Chelsea. But when he came back, he said, I, I, I want to come in with you and I'm going to buy the next bus and fit it out. And you know, then we had two buses, I guess, and then he and we bought another bus and then Mick Carroll came in later on. and. Bill's still, you know, one of the founders in Top Deck. They, in Flight Centre? Top Deck, Flight Centre, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he hasn't been involved in a executive no. way for some probably 20 years, I suppose, or more. So you mentioned you were brought up on an orchard. I mean, what was your family life like? Were your folks, did they run the orchard or were they entrepreneurial? It was a very small business, you know, and as a family business and uh, you were expected to work, you know, in the business from when you could, you know. So growing apples and selling them? Yeah, basically. I mean, for example, I think it was seven. When I was seven, Dad taught me to drive the tractor so he could use the spray or other things like that. And, you know, it was a family thing. I had two sisters and mum used to work on the orchard as well. So if you had to describe it in one word, it was very hardworking and very boring. So, uh, But, yeah, that's that's what life on the land is like on that sort of property. You know? mm. Can we skip forward to when you did come back and start Flight Centre in 1982? Can you remember the feeling of uh, when your first shop opened? I mean, where was that? And were you behind the counter? The first shop, we came back. My son, Matthew, was born in 81. So you were married by then? You you married your wife, Jude? Yeah, we married, I think, <laughs> I think it was 75. Might oh, have been 76. You don't but... remember? Oh, screw, you're going to get into trouble. <laughs> it was around Christmas, so it might have been. It was December, so I think it was 76. I'll go for 76. And, yeah, we had our first baby, Matt. 
in 81 and we decided we did want to live in Australia. So basically Mick and Bill were running the operation there. I went back to Australia. We had a coach operation as well that uh, this is getting complicated, but with a guy, another friend of mine who was involved in Top Deck, we called Across Australia Coach Lines. That was with Wombat. And <laughs> we don't need, even need to probably know Wombat's real name, but, but then what's the connection with Flight Centre? <sighs> well, it was because you know, we were doing this Across Australia Coach Lines, and it was about that time that I was talking to a, someone who was working with us, Dave Tonkin, in London, he, he was working in a, what they used to call bucket shops in London. Which were what, the cheap airfare shops? Yeah. Th- and this is in the very early 80s. And mm. So he had experience. He was obviously a good salesman and very good at his job, which, you know, I wouldn't have been good at that at all. And I, we convinced him to come in with us on a 50-50. So it was Dave Tonkin and Top Deck. 50-50 in the first shop, which was called Sydney Flight Centre. He called it Sydney Flight Centre, and that was in the Prudential Arcade just off Martin Place in Sydney. And that started off, it was quite successful right from the start. Dave was very good, and he had some good people with him. So he was in the shop. You weren't. He was in the shop in Sydney. I was in Brisbane and working out of what we, we had a top deck travel office in Brisbane selling top deck <laughs> travel. Right. Yes, after a year, Dave came back to me and said, oh, look, because the deal was, and we had a piece of paper saying that it was a 50-50 partnership and we put in the initial funds and basically I think it was said that, you know, we'll take half the profits and Dave does all the work, something like that. So it was a pretty simple agreement. So he came over and a year later and said, I was in London at the time, he said, look, I think we made eighty or ninety thousand in the first year. He made it. I, I, I have obviously contributed very little, except a bit of capital. And he said, "I want to buy you out," and, and which he did. And that's with that cash we opened in Brisbane again with Spy, and in he was back in Brisbane and Jeff Harris in Melbourne, who was a fifty-fifty there as well. So that's really how we started. Uh, and was that Flight Centre? Well, it was Brisbane Flight Centre in Brisbane, Sydney Flight Centre in Sydney, and Jeff opened, called it the Flight Shop. So we later changed the name consistently in the early 90s to Flight Centre. Did you become rich in those first few years or the first decade, or was it a, a, a struggle for quite a while? We took minimal salaries and basically no dividends from 73 to probably about 86 or 90. Basically, whoever was in partnership lived off the company. You know, if we rented a house, it would be rented by the company. If we went out for a meal, it would be paid by the company. And we had virtually no money until, really until we floated in 95. So, uh, you know, I'm not complaining because we lived as we needed to, certainly not elaborately, but that wasn't our priority. Our priority was building the business. Yeah. I mean, you ran hard with discounted airfares. Australians appeared to love it. Consumers went with you. And really, in these past 40 years, as you know, Australians adore travelling. Flight Centre is one of those companies who capitalised on that in a big way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was 
probably more good luck than anything. But I suppose when I came back in 81, 82, and when you saw what had happened in London, uh, and it was still illegal to discount airfares in, in Australia, but it just seemed like it was a good opportunity. And we probably did better than I ever would have thought, even in the 80s, you know. But we, again, the same with Top Deck, we put everything that we made back, basically back into the business, into growing business. Mm. You turned Flight Tend, as you say, into a publicly listed company in 95. What was the great benefit of that decision, apart from, no doubt, making you fairly wealthy partners? Look, the main rationale for us was we wanted to give our staff the opportunity to buy into the business. We had quite a few partners who had, you know, were shareholding up generally about 25% of each shop. We eventually changed that in the late 80s because it was just too complicated. You had to be licensed as a travel agent. So, you know, by the time we had, you know, 30 or 40 shops, we had 30 or 40 partners and all this sort of thing. So, And then we really wanted to give our, our people, our key people particularly, but, but everyone who wanted a chance to buy, to have shares in the business. You know, we were quite a small business. Mm. I think we were doing, we did about 13 million profit. We had about 900 million in sales. When was this? This is in 95. Right. Yeah, so we wanted to give them that opportunity and – that's really why we floated. It, when, when we looked at it, it was the only easy way, relatively easy way, you know, when you've got a few hundred people that were probably going to in, be interested in investing. And, and when we floated, I think the staff was, it was 85 cents to staff and 95 cents to the public. So we had quite a big take-up, actually. Fantastic. And did many of those people stick with you? Look, um, for some time, yes, and I think our share price went up to five, six dollars before too long. But you know, people, it's the same story as I said before with a lot of our people who've been stood down. Now, people get families, yeah, and buy houses, have mortgages, yeah, and they need the money, yeah, and that's the time of their life when they'll tend to cash them in. So it's very quite a lot, but. You know, there were quite a few people who bought 50,000 shares funded by their parents at the time, and not many of them would have most, you know, that 50,000 shares now. So it's all relative, you know. Screw, you built this business. You've got some 30-plus brands, corporate travel, student travel, leisure travel. You've gone for a whole lot of different sorts of products, online business. Why do you think your company was able to become so successful? I guess, in other words, why did consumers keep coming back to Flight Centre and your product, given particularly the internet? People can book their own travel. They love to book their own travel. Did that hurt you? Look, it depends where you are and what brand you're talking about. Certainly through this crisis now, you know, we've consolidated quite a lot of our leisure brands in particular. So we'll come out of this as, you know, certainly a leaner and cleaner organization with less brands and uh, more focus on a few really important brands like Flight Center, like Corporate Traveler. And, you know, the online's been with us since about 95. And certainly until about 2014, we we're probably competing pretty well with it. And in corporate, we are largely online, you know, that's, mm. but with a personal touch. And uh, leisure 
we'd been struggling a little bit over the last few years, struggling to grow it. So, and we do quite a bit of on online anyway in leisure, but we see that you know we will need to do more and more of that in the future, both in land and air. And but we still see a big future in leisure, but because it's so marketing and people intensive and service intensive, mm. you know it does need a slightly different approach. And uh, I think that's one of the challenges that we've had and been really focused on during this coronavirus crisis simply because we do need to change the way we work our leisure businesses and we certainly have no option with the pandemic to to make some significant changes in that as well. Then the switch from being totally reliant on leisure in probably around the 2000 mark in a 50, 50, 50% of it's now corporate or was corporate and we also do quite a bit of ground handling and hotels and that sort of thing too that we lease. So you know, we have diversified a reasonable amount, but there's some of these will come back and some probably won't. You know? Yeah. You also own Spices Retreats, which I understand is run by your wife, Jude. Is that an important business for you? Look, for Jude and I, it is. I mean, Jude's mainly involved in that and we have a CEO or an MD that actually runs it operationally and it's a bit of a labour of love. I think we have nine retreats and we have just opened the Scenic Rim Trail which is is one of the great walks of Australia and, and it will be one of the greatest, I believe. Well, I just did it last weekend. Uh, it's a five-day walk. So, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's very special. They're generally on our properties with a lot of space and it's very different to your average retreat. So, yeah, we're, we're quite proud of them. Mm. If you ever get a chance, uh, go and try one. Mm. How important would you say your marriage has been, your family has been to you? Has your wife, Jude, been with you in all the decisions, all the adventures you've had in business? Pretty much so, yeah. Look, she joined when we were heavily involved in Top Deck and then when we had kids, Matt and our daughter Jo, she was born 83. So Jude was you know, involved in the flights in the early days and then certainly in Spices, she's been quite influential. You know, a lot of the design and that comes a fair bit from her capability in that area and I obviously give her some advice and she gives me plenty of advice but you know, we've... It's been a long and you know, pretty good marriage, I think. She might have a different opinion, but we're a bit interesting family because Matt, our son, started 99 Bikes about 12 years ago, and that's grown quite a lot, and that's in partnership with Flight Centre now. And our daughter Jo has an active wear business, design and manufacture business based in London. So you know, uh, you can imagine around the family dinner table whenever we get together, it's a bit interesting. Yeah, so you're breeding entrepreneurs as well. Now, do you think of yourself as an innovator? Because one of your partners I read described that you look at things in a different way. You think outside the box. Do you see yourself as an innovator? Not, not particularly. I mean, I'll tend to look at what other people are doing and where I think probably what they're doing has not been sort of recognised as with the full potential that I think it might have. So I'm probably a bit more of a copycat than an innovator, but, you know, probably 
I enjoy the marketing aspects of the business and thinking about you know how to promote things and that sort of thing. Or and what customers want. Yeah, well, probably I'm not great at that. It's just I'll tend to think that looks like a pretty good idea. I reckon that could work. But you know, the bikes was an interesting one because Matt was a physio and. We got talking when he was, you know, 23, 24 or something, and he was fairly keen on sport. And I suggested to him that, you know, bikes might be an interesting game because no one really dominated it. Mm. And a bit like I thought with Fight Center. And I, I don't say I had anything more to do than that. I might just put it in his mind. And he then decided to open a bike shop in Milton. You know, now they've got, I think they've got 50 shops in Australia now. And, you know, it's quite a big organization. Gosh. And, but other than, the one thing he's originally suggesting that it might be interesting to have a look at and him being involved in learning how Flight Centre works, which was totally his own initiative, that's about the input I've had to that, I'm afraid. And, mm. But it's been quite successful so far, so particularly during the coronavirus, actually. Exactly. Now, you're also known for being pretty down to earth without, it said, the need to surround yourself with the trappings of your success. But nonetheless, as a founder, you have made yourself very rich. You seem to be on the Forbes and the AFR rich lists pretty much year in, year out for the last little while. But is it true that, you know, you do like to share the spoils with your employees? Is it true that there are no extra perks for senior executives at Flight Centre unless everyone gets them? That's probably a stretch of the imagination a little (laughs) bit, but we try to make sure that we don't have, that no one has privileges. Obviously, people are on different wages, incentives and packages, but for example, we don't have individual offices or you know, people work on workstations and, and that sort of thing. So that's pretty much the way it works. And I think most people will accept that. One of our key features is we try to be egalitarian as much as we can. And that's generally our culture, I think, throughout the world, you know, in, in the countries we will operate in. Mm. I'm asking all my guests pretty much these questions and we can keep it short. Have you a business motto or a set of values and principles that you abide by along the way? Yeah, we, we've got a, a set of philosophies. There are actually 10. <laughs> Don't ask me them all now. But, you know, for example, egalitarianism is one and I think that's where no privileges unless everyone has them. And when someone is annoyed at management or me or whatever, they, they'll always come in with the philosophies. Well, our philosophy number six that, that counteracts that, you know, so it's always used against us as well, but that's, <laughs> that's good, yeah. Do you have a life motto? Um, the main thing for me is whether it's in business or family or, you know, it, it is to have fun, enjoy what you're doing. Otherwise, it's not worth doing. So having fun probably is, if I have a life motto, that's it. That's a fantastic life motto to have, particularly for somebody who's been so successful. What's the biggest thing you reckon you've learned on this journey to build several businesses? Oh, look, I, I think probably the main thing is that it is about persistence. And if you're not prepared to persist, well, just don't do it. And, you know, things don't, very few things become successful overnight. And I think people do expect that. It often takes years and years. 
and, and they'll go around in circles. They'll become unsuccessful and you have to rebuild them and that sort of thing. So you've got to play the long game in most businesses. Obviously, there's some that, that have been very successful very quickly, but I haven't had too much examples of that in our business life. What are you obsessed about at the moment? I'm obsessed with this coronavirus as to predicting what the outcome's going to be. If you ask anyone <laughs> right from the start, I've been reading everything I can get hold of and listening to everyone to see if we can get a reasonable idea of where this is going to head and what the timeline's going to be. Mm, did you have any sleepless nights during the height of the, say, March and April with COVID? And are you getting a good night's sleep now? Look, I don't think I had any sleepless nights. I probably had a few where I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about things. But no, look, I'm reasonably comfortable that, you know, as long as you're doing everything you feel you need to be doing, and I think generally we are, I'm, those sort of things don't worry me too much. Yeah. Screw Turner, how much of your success with Top Deck, but mainly Flight Centre, is due to your drive, your intelligence, your innate skills, your expertise, and how much is due to luck? Look, I think luck will always come into it, but I think the most important thing is the people you're working with. And if I have one skill, it's possibly getting the right people and and making sure that we, we have a bit of fun with it and making sure that ideally, you know, if you get the right people, the right capabilities and the right mix of that, then uh, it doesn't rely on me too much at all, except for, you know, bringing them along with us for the ride and, and enjoying it and having a bit of fun at the same time. Yeah. You said your your total sales have dropped enormously. What do you reckon they're going to be? This is this total transaction value. It's like your total travel sales written, is it? Yeah, that's right. That's We use this TDV term yeah. because it's not actually turnover in travel. Look, we were doing about $24, 25000000000 billion pre-COVID if this next financial year, we can get back to probably half to two-thirds of that. We'll be very happy. So roughly between 12 and 17 million? A billion? Billion? Yeah, 12 and 15 billion, we'd probably be quite happy. For this full year, financial year 20? Yes, and, and I'm probably being overly optimistic, but uh, we'll see. All right. Graham Screw-Turner, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you, Helen. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.